Hello there, welcome to Jubes and Curd, the podcast of my show on GB News. My name's Michelle Jubery, and you can catch me live every weekday evening from 6 till 7pm. But worry not, if you miss it, you can catch up here after every show. So let's do it. Welcome to Jubes and Curd. Well, keeping me company tonight here, my panel, we've got Michael Heaver, who's a political YouTuber and commentator, Ashley Frawley, who's a sociologist at Swansea University, and Kevin Craig, who's the CEO of communications company PLMR. Uh, our top story tonight, then, the Prime Minister has defended the government's new energy strategy following attacks that it doesn't help people that are struggling with soaring bills. Uh, Boris Johnson says it was a long-term plan that was focused on energy supply. The strategy, of course, is basically all about uh, increasing energy independence here. It includes plans for things like uh, boosting nuclear, wind and hydrogen power. Apparently, the plans will ensure that up to 95% of the UK's electricity could come from low-carbon sources by 2030. Let's have a listen to Boris Johnson on this. Energy security here in the UK. This is the home of nuclear energy. We first split the atom in the UK. We had the first civilian nuclear power plant. We're bringing nuclear home with uh, one nuclear plant and one nuclear reactor every year for eight years rather than one uh, a decade. Well, given uh, more information on this is our political editor, Darren McCaffrey. Darren, good evening to you. Uh, I mean, I have to say uh, it's divided opinion, hasn't it, this energy strategy today? Lots of criticism that it didn't address pretty much anything in the immediate. It was all focused on medium to long term. Yeah, that was certainly the criticism, uh, Michelle, from the Labour Party, who said it was too little, uh, too late. But to be fair to the government, they insist this is a long-term uh, strategy. Their argument is, if anything, this war uh, with Russia and Ukraine has shown uh, that we are too dependent on energy resources outside of these islands. And we need to uh, look, uh, at least in the coming years, about how we make ourselves more energy uh, independent from the rest of the world. However... Is that going to solve the problems that people are facing right now with uh, massively increased energy bills this month? An expectation the same will happen in October. No, it will not. Uh, but in the end, uh, this, the government would argue, will set the UK on a more even keel in the future with the introduction of these eight new nuclear power plants that are being talked about uh, in different parts of the countries. But, but that won't happen until what? potentially the start of the next decade. Also more offshore wind farms as well. Uh, again, that could be done pretty quickly, but it all depends on planning permission. Also talk about using hydrogen, solar power. I think more interestingly, there's talk about trying to extract more oil and gas from the North Sea, which Britain could do uh, pretty quickly if there was the right investment uh, to do so. When I say quickly, it's not going to be months, but certainly could be done within years. Also interestingly today, Michelle, was what was not included in the energy document, and that was uh, fracking. Of, yeah. In fact, there was hardly any mention of it at all, a sign, I think, that the government is still pretty lukewarm towards that, as they are as well with onshore uh, wind farms, i.e. wind turbines on land uh, in people's fields. Uh, the government clearly feel that's still not particularly popular with many people up and down at the country. So in the short term, this is going to make very little difference, if any, at all. But many would at least argue, at least the government are starting to consider where our energy is going to come from in the years and decades to come. 
Yeah, and I mean, it's interesting you say that they're starting uh, to consider this. So, you know, they have been in power, the concept is quite some time now. And of course, Boris Johnson today was referencing, uh, correcting essentially the mistakes of the past, wasn't he? Yeah, it's really extraordinary, actually, that Boris Johnson does use this argument quite a lot, as if, well, you know, he's been prime minister for uh, nearly three years. But you're right in pointing out the Conservatives have been in power uh, for 12 years, and he often blames the Labour Party for not necessarily looking at this properly. Many would suggest uh, previous Conservative administrations, David Cameron and Theresa May, uh, didn't do so either. There have been rows about the, this within uh, Cabinet and indeed within government and within the Conservative Party, Michelle, about what is the best way uh, forward. We've had those particularly close to quasi-Quad 10 and those who are keen on COP26 and climate change saying that the future still has to be renewable energy. It has to be things like wind and solar energy that should be the heart of all of this. We've had another group of MPs essentially arguing we need to look at nuclear again. And I think nuclear is the real winner today. Interestingly, the Prime Minister was at Hinkley Point, that new nuclear power station that's due to open in the next couple of years, to make that announcement. There is no doubt that nuclear energy is the big winner uh, today. But then there are another group of Conservative MPs who are a bit frustrated, who do want to see fracking, who do want to see more oil and gas extracted from the North Sea. And many of them are reasonably pleased, but they're not entirely pleased. They still think the government could do for, go further to extract the resources underneath the ground in this country, given the dire circumstances that we're likely to find ourselves in uh, in the coming years, uh, given those increasing energy prices, which are not expected to subside anytime soon. Indeed, Dan McCaffrey, thanks for that. Uh, let's bring in my panel then, shall we? Ashley, what was your thoughts on some of this today? Um, I usually make fun of Labour for having two lines, which is uh, doesn't go far enough and long overdue. But on this particular occasion, I'm actually in agreement that I think it's long overdue. Um, it's, it's very good to see that, um, especially the support for nuclear, um, a serious commitment to what I think is one of the only realistic solutions to our energy needs in a developed society. Um, so the goal is to have um, nuclear power increase to um, providing 25% of the UK's energy needs um, demand for electricity by 2050. I've seen more ambitious targets, but I think this is certainly in, uh, a step in the right direction. Um, you know, domestic energy supplies, including uh, nuclear and shale gas, if that stops being uh, a lukewarm kind of target, are going to take time to grow. Um, and this needed to be invested in and thought seriously about a long time ago. Nonetheless, um, the ability to, uh, you know, advance resources on a large scale is what states are good at. And I think this is a really good plan. It's a it's a it's big thinking. That's what we need to solve a big problem. Um, it should have been done a long time ago. I think states have increasingly moved away from these kinds of big ideas, you know, they're, towards this kind of small is beautiful, um, moving toward, you know, um, these kind of small scale projects. So it's just really good to see the return of big thinking in this way. Mm. Kevin Craig, big thinking? Yeah, I think you have to give the government uh, a bit of credit, Michelle, actually. Uh, Whoa well, uh, <laughs> yeah, there! Are yeah, you yeah. feeling all right tonight? Yeah, I think it's important that people who love this country don't just automatically wade in against the political opponents at every chance. Mm, good. So I think today there is a lot in the energy strategy that, as Darren just said, and, you know, Ashley echoed it, over the lot, this is long-term stuff, where the government are not going to make a single uh, impact is the immediate uh, energy um, price crisis, but as Ashley said, some really good stuff about nuclear and steps forward 
about um, uh, solar power, although no targets, uh, good stuff about hydrogen, targets a bit too small, but it's, it's good and, and it, is, it is time they thought about it. It is worth saying, Darren did mention this, let's go to fracking, right? Because I have a feeling it might come up tonight, right? Mm. You know? Now, we, we need to remind ourselves, right? And this is a Conservative government announcement. We ended support for fracking because it is not currently possible to accurately predict the probability and size of disruptive tremors associated with the process. Now, the fact is, what also was snuck out earlier this week is that the government's launched a consultation on fracking. Mm -hmm. And I suspect that, you know, pretty, because of the appetite amongst the Conservative Party key audiences, it will come back in front of us. But I think a neutral listener and viewer today would say uh, this is good, to echo Ashley's words, long-term, big-picture thinking. It's not, not enough, but it's a good start. Michael? Yeah, look, I think overall, I think it's fair to say when we look at both Labour and Conservative governments, big mistakes have been made on energy. I don't think we've taken a long-term approach enough. We've had too much short-term thinking. And I certainly think, you know, moving ahead with nuclear, I mean, we see the madness in Germany, for instance, where they've actually been shutting these down and they've been pilloried for that decision. Mm. Uh, we hear from the EU now they've paid 35 billion euros for Russian energy since the invasion of Ukraine. So that shows you what you don't want to do. So I certainly think, look, there's a lot of good things, including nuclear, in this plan. In terms of fracking, I don't think we as a country can afford not to do it, frankly. We have to use every single resource we have to get energy prices down here and become energy well, fracking is not, because uh, I think sometimes people will say about fracking because the concept and the principle of fracking sounds great, which is, i.e., why are we sourcing uh, energy from God only knows where when we potentially have sources of it here? You know, let's be self-sufficient, let's be independent. So as a principle, that's great. But the reality of fr uh, fracking is, this isn't going to be like a quick, you drill it today and you've got the gas tomorrow. This is not uh, an immediate quick win well, well, that's going to fix this cost of living when it comes the, to energy, is it? But there isn't a short-term quick fix to any of this, is there? And that's why this strategy is a medium to long-term view. There but are, the latest there, comrades, there bills, Michael, but the latest, just to, to the, say a positive, the latest, thing, Michael, the latest comrades poll. I just like to finish on this point. The latest comrades poll actually show, uh, for Net Zero Watch actually shows now that affordability ahead of Net Zero, anything else, affordability of energy is the number one priority yeah. for the public, of course. And this new comrades poll also shows that more Brits now support uh, ending the ban on fracking than oppose it because we need to use every tool at our disposal. No one's saying it's a magic wand, but we must use all the resources we have. What were you going to say, Kevin? Well, just, I, I'd, I'd, I would debate uh, uh, the, the opinion polling figures on fracking there, but there is something, and I was just saying it only because Michael raised it, there is something that can be immediately be done on the cost of energy, which is, as you've talked about on this programme before, which is a, a windfall levy on the oil and gas companies that would uh, immediately bring down annual bills six, eight hundred pounds. You know, I, I go back to the things that you've said before, Michelle, fostering this debate, but we, those companies can afford it. They've been making money hand over fist and there is on the table proposals that the government are not taking up about a windfall levy, which would make a difference to the listeners and viewers tonight that will not come today from this, albeit laudable, 
See, I've got to say, I mean, I've spoken out, I think we've even spoken about it before. I've always been very against um, this windfall tax kind of concept because I don't like the idea of, oh, our company's doing well, so let's quickly jump on it and take a little bit of it. And then when they're, less, when they're doing not so well, let's just not worry about that. I'm a, a, a capitalist at heart, a, a responsible capitalist. Same. But I have to say, and I'm surprised at myself about what's about to come out of my mouth. Go on. But I have actually started now to almost warm and come round to the idea that perhaps, perhaps, I'm not completely sold on it, I will concede, but perhaps a windfall tax is not such a bad idea because I do, I mean, I know of people that are genuinely struggling to, to use, it's not just heating, by the way. I mean, we know of people that are sitting there saying, oh, I don't want to buy this because it's going to use more energy to cook it yeah. than this. And it's terrible. It's not a, a, a good place for people's being. But I do think, by the way, sorry to bring it about politics, um, but one of the reasons, not the only reason, one of the reasons we're in this situation was because so many economies went into lockdown uh, and then kind of started to emerge at the same time. So the whole supply demand basics, this is one of the contributing factors. And I do sometimes listen to Labour and I think, well, you know, it's all well and good talking about windfall taxes, et cetera, et cetera. But if you had your way, we'd probably still be locked down by now. So that side of things would be even worse. Um, That's a stretch. Come on. It's not a stretch. I think it's a very sensible, uh, probably very accurate observation. Well, they kept saying, self. follow China, follow China. Uh. <laughs> but, but actually, I do think the Tories are missing a trick here because, you know, I always say it's a good job for everyone's sake. I'm not in charge. But if I was, I would be looking at this whole kind of the green levies and things like that. And I would say, look, you know, let's just press pause on this whole green stuff for a couple of years or for a year. Even just start with a year. Let's go mm. small. For a year, we'll press pause. We'll take your green levies and stuff off your bills. Because, you know, all this, you know, net zero and all the rest of it, it's wonderful. But we're in the here and now. We've got problems in the here and now. And I don't get why the Tories are not doing that. Just press pause on the green levies for stuff. Take the VAT off. Um, I don't know. Maybe a windfall, but I'm not sure about that one. Mm. They're not doing the things that they could do to help. Well, it's quite difficult because we're in this situation at the moment because of a lack of long-term thinking. And so if you try to bring in measures that are short-term, what you wind up doing is just kicking the can down the road. And we, we're still in the same situation some years down the road. So I, I like the idea also of, you know, uh, more progressive taxation. I mean, this has been really controversial in every country that tries to pass the buck for um, green investments onto the population. It's, it's unfair. Um, it's uh, These are things that have been um, lobbied for by groups of people who tend to be quite privileged, um, and then to kind of pass that on to people who are not very privileged. On the other hand, I do recognize that um, part of the problem why we have a very deep, deep problem why we have an energy crisis is that um, it's just if you eat into profits, then the the um, energy doesn't get extracted. Um, if you eat, and we're having this, this is an issue that's all around the world at the moment with all sorts of commodities like uh, ammonia and agriculture. It's becoming unprofitable to produce ammonia. I mean, that's terrifying because we need that. That's like for our food. And so we're kind of, we're in a very, very deep, uh, we have deep economic problems and the solutions are not actually very simple at all. No, but, and, and a lot of what you say there has, has got merit, but on, on, in this instance, and, and what I think all of us with our different um, views around the table, I think the idea of what is a decent level of profit, is there no limit on profit level? Is it, is it, is there, is it limitless? And I, I go back to the former chair, um, and I think he's either, I can't remember if he's independent or conservative, Lord Brown, who said that, you know, the oil and gas companies can take it. And this is the moment, you know, they have, 
Um, and I, I agree with you because taxation, again, you've got, you've got to be careful not to disincentivise people mm -hmm. who want to create wealth and create jobs. But at the moment, the listener and the viewer is looking at three, four, five, six hundred quid extra a year and thinking, how is that fair? And I, I'll, I'll send you all the link afterwards to the um, Keir Starmer, Rachel Reeves announcement on the windfall tax. It's fantastic. It's great reading. And um, the answer is in there. Yeah, I mean, lots of people, Michael, lots of people are emailing in just the point that Kevin was making there. You know, we shouldn't need a windfall tax is what lots of people are saying. Um, it should be up to the company that basically to sit there and say, because I think if one energy company said, if one energy company came out and said, you know what, we're going to reduce our profit margins for the next 12 months. We're going to take, I don't know, whatever, just say 10%, whatever, I'm making that up. We're going to take 10% off our own profit margins to pass directly on to you, the consumer. I think a lot of people would look at switching to that um, organisation, that company, and perhaps might stay there for the longer term with a bit of loyalty, etc. And then actually other companies would probably be forced to follow them because they don't want to lose that business. So the viewers writing in tonight are saying that it should be down to the companies. Yeah, look, I'm sure that's right. There could be a real commercial advantage in that sort of thing. And by the way, you know, I think the Conservative government, I, in term, we talked longer term, in the short term, are going to have to come up with a better solution to this because the higher bills go ultimately, you know, the more popular, I think, Labour's approach is going to become in terms of a windfall tax, in terms of public support. So mm -hmm. the Tories need a short-term answer as well, and hence why I point, I, you know, in terms of the, the fracking and the public support for that is clearly growing because people are desperate here for a solution. They want something done and they want it done urgently because they can't afford these increases. Yeah, and David just emailed in, um, and David, you hit on the kind of reluctance that I've got. So David said... Um, you know, a windfall tax on big pharmaceutical companies um, mm. would really give us a boost. And this, for me, is where I get slightly nervous about windfall taxes, because we're all talking about it now and banging the drum saying, let's do a windfall tax on energy companies because energy's gone up. But where do you then draw the line? So there are some large organi pharmaceutical organisations that have made a lot of money. Uh, for example, there are a lot of, say, I don't know, PPE companies that have made uh, a lot of profit. So what do we do? Do we windfall uh, tax those companies to put into, say, the energy? NHS, for example, and lots of you will be going, well, yes, we do, yes, we do, and that's interesting. But what do you then do if, I don't know, external factors mean that those organisations then have a decreasing profit, they lose business, do we then step in and help them? If not, why not? Why would it only be one way? We take their good, but don't support their bad. Do you see what I mean in all this? Um, so I am on the fence with windfall taxes. Uh, let me know where you stand, but I do certainly think that there are things that the government could be doing, uh, should be doing, and actually I find it quite baffling as to why they're not. Uh, let me know your thoughts, gbviews at gbnews.uk, tweet me at Michelle Jubes. A quick reminder as to my panel tonight, Michael Heaver, who's a political YouTuber and commentator, Ashley Frawley, who's a sociologist at Swansea University, and Kevin Craig, who's a CEO of communications company PLMR. Um, lots of you getting in contact about the windfall strategy. This does seem to be a real mixed reaction to this. Lots of you, of course, are in favour of this, saying it absolutely should be done. Uh, some of you saying the only benefits from this would be the government, but I don't really get how that would work, because I think the concept would be you don't windfall the, the company and then keep it. The whole point of it would be that you then disseminate that to the people that need it to help them uh, with their bills. Uh, and a few of you are probably 
um, are probably a bit like me on the fence with it. And it's quite rare, actually, that I am on the fence with things, but on this one, I actually am. Um, Peter's been in touch, by the way. I was pondering this over the break. Peter says, Jubes, it's nice to see you're happy wearing your digital ID as opposed to it being administered. I mean, Peter, I'm trying to work out what you mean. Are you saying, are you suggesting I have come dressed like a barcode tonight or a QR code? Um, if you are, I advise you not to try and scan me. God only knows where you'd end up if you did that. Anyway, uh, the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, is facing calls to reveal his family's financial affairs after it emerged his wife benefits from a tax saving scheme. Uh, Hashata Murti is non-DOM status, which means that she doesn't have to pay UK tax on income earned abroad. She earns money from shares in an Indian software giant company which was founded by her father. Now, her spokeswoman says that she pays all tax due in the UK, but Labour has called for complete transparency. Now, just to be clear, she uh, apparently hasn't done anything illegal, but the concerns and the calls are whether or not it's moral and ethical and all the rest of it. But, Kevin Craig, I find this quite interesting because when people start talking about, well, it's not moral, it's not ethical, I think to myself, well, hang on a second. To me, tax, it's a kind of a legal thing. You pay what you pay, mm. and that's the end of the story for me. Morals and ethics and all the rest of it. I find that a bit peculiar argument, but what do you think? Well, I'm sorry to sound a bit wishy-washy, Michelle, but this is quite complicated because most listeners and viewers will think, well... What does it actually mean to be a nom-dom? And that they'll, they'll be confused by the idea that basically the wife of a senior government minister with clear ambitions to lead the country, that she considers herself domiciled in India and that the net effect of that is that she pays less tax when her husband's day job is administering the tax system. I would warn, I would counsel caution to a lot of people, including in the Labour Party, about being too preachy about this sort of issue, right? Um, because as you say, Michelle, a lot of people with a certain level of wealth do minimise their tax bills, right? Whether they pay themselves dividends through companies, they do all sorts. And also people on, you know, just making it in life in that getting into the 50 to 100k a year bracket. But the problem here is, I don't know why, why does she bother with this? I mean, it's a billionaire family, right? They're so wealthy. I mean, what on earth is there to save? And you is who's I don't know who said it just today. The optics are terrible. So I think it's an open goal. And of course, the person who's loving this is the prime minister. Because a few <laughs> weeks ago, you had to send out a search party to find Rishi to get him to come into the aid of the prime minister. And now, you know, he's, he, the, the, the gloss is wearing off him, and Boris will be silently loving it because you you couldn't find him, could you, Ashley, a few weeks ago? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it is quite interesting, as you say. So she was born in India. She's Indian. Her parents are in India. And India, as I understand it, don't allow you to have this dual citizenship. So she's lived here for nine years. So she regards herself as domiciled in India. And this is legal. There's nothing wrong with it and all the rest of it. Um, Ashley, your thoughts? Um, it seems to me that she tried to, there was some attempt to um, make it sound like, well, you know, I would if I could, but <laughs> but that's not the case. Obviously, you don't need a UK passport to pay tax in the UK. That's not what happened. She had to apply for this. Um, so she's actually made an effort <laughs> not to pay tax in the UK. Um, and obviously, as you said, it's not illegal. It's the optics of it. And it looks really quite bad when you are asking people who are, um, you know, close to the poverty line already um, to make sacrifices 
um, and you yourself are doing everything you can to avoid paying, and especially but when on, we're seeing you're conflating. You, you've just said when you yourself are asking people to do whatever, pay more national insurance, mm. and then you are doing this, you're conflating a husband and a wife. You're creating like a single entity out of a couple. Oh, no. And I find you're that no families are, are set. Oh, families right now are you live in a house with your family, and you know, my children are, are going to see the effect of the increased energy bills that I have to pay. It's not conflating anything. His family is not feeling the sting like everyone else. That's the point. It's the, now, of course, it's perfectly legal, but it doesn't look good when people are facing a crisis at the moment and, and not being able to pay for their essentials, when someone who is so rich has made an effort not to pay into our system. Well, I, I uh, in fact, Michael, no, I was just about to go on a rant about what I think. <laughs> you, what do you think? Well, look, Rishi Sunak, after his latest uh, statement, we've seen his public support go down considerably and with Conservative members as well, which should be noted. And what I would say is you've got to remember the last election. There were a lot of working class voters whose family had voted Labour their entire lives, you know, generations, and they were the first ever to vote Conservative. And the fact is... This looks terrible. And Labour are going to absolutely hammer the Conservatives and the Chancellor on this. Whether people like it or not, this will resonate, I believe, in working class communities. I can't believe this is the case. Obviously, the legal side's another. But you better, you know, make no mistake about it. Labour are going to plaster this all over their leaflets in the Red Wall seats. And I actually think it could do significant harm to the Conservatives. Yeah, see, see, I thing it smacks a little bit because I've already got people writing in saying about you know we're being asked to shoulder this burden of the increased national insurance and all the rest of it but to me this smacks a little bit of politics of envy and I don't respect it because there is a real difference between everybody or people at a certain threshold uh, especially in July but people let's just say simplified people everyone it's there's a real difference between people being asked to do a national insurance increase and then the tax status of the wife of the Chancellor. And I, yeah, I do actually. I do. I think it's a conflation of issues. Someone said something to me actually, and I, I, I kind of it got me thinking. Uh, the timing of this is quite fascinating because if we go back a few months, um, we're almost on the cusp, I'm, I'm going to exaggerate slightly, but we're almost on the cusp of like an internal coup against Boris Johnson because of parties. And I just kind of, and you know, then a, a war happened and, and things moved on and people got distracted. But Rishi Sunak was the person that would be looked to as the potential, you know, the, the, the next leader, if you like. So I find it quite interesting now that things are starting to come out about Rishi Sunak and we're having these conversations and his popularity is getting uh, impacted. But maybe I'm just being a little bit cynical, Kevin. No, I, I think there's, uh, as I said, Michelle, the person who will be most happy about what you've just described is the Prime Minister because uh, uh, Rishi Sunak's uh, popularity and currency and the man-in-waiting status is gone, out the window. My Michael is, is quite right. There will be a lot of this featured on election leaflets. But there is... Your point is, is quite interesting about uh, there's a difference, you say, Michelle, in, 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 in the, the tax decisions of the wife of the Chancellor and asking people to pay more national insurance. But actually, in politics, there isn't. And if you step up to, to serve in the Cabinet or as a minister, you're, you, you do actually 
end up playing to a different set of rules. And it's the same thing, do as we say, not as we do, that got people really wound up, dare I mention it, about Partygate. It's like, give us, the poor plebs out there, the set of rules, and then you lot crack on and do whatever you fancy. But I just think this is a bit unfair. I just think that this is his wife. She's Indian. Mm. You can't have dual citizenship. This was all declared when he first started going into politics, I think, or first started becoming prominent in politics. So there's no rules or anything like that being broken. And Mac has emailed in. And I, I agree with you, Mac. Um, I have to say, lots of people don't agree with you and I, that's being honest. <laughs> but he says, I find it rather repugnant that Starmer stoops this low in his sleaze campaign against the government. India doesn't allow dual citizenship, so what's the problem? He asks, would any of your... Listen, I'm quoting, this is not my words, it's Mac. He says, would any of your self-righteous, hypocritical panel actually rush forward to pay additional tax if they don't need to? See, I agree with you. What do you think, Michael? But look, this is politics and this is the Chancellor and this is at a time where people have feeling the squeeze economically. And the facts are, whether people like it or not, you know, in particularly working class communities struggling to pay their bills, I'm afraid this will resonate. This is the Chancellor, this is the man giving out the economic statements. Uh, I slightly disagree in terms of whether Boris Johnson will be jumping with joy, of course, because if this brings down the government as a whole, wow. uh, if, it, if it smashes their popularity in the run-up to the May elections, yeah. then Boris Johnson's uh, job could be back on the line, I think. You know, a lot of Tory MPs back Boris on the basis he's an election winner. If there are a dire set of elections in May and this feeds into it for the Conservatives, then you never know, the letters may start going back in. But here's the thing. OK, I can totally understand um, that this is just political opportunism. Absolutely. But what it does draw attention to is not only do wealthy people avoid tax, um, there's also a tendency to shift losses so when a business doesn't do well, they'll shift their losses onto the government, i.e. the taxpayer. So, for example, I think one of the small things that came out of this that people aren't talking about is um, that um, his wife has had a fitness company, I think, which accepted an enormous amount of um, money during the COVID-19 pandemic and then went out of business and wrote off all these losses. Um, and so... What ends up happening is those losses get pushed onto the taxpayer. And I think that draws attention to the fact that um, part of the huge scandal that we're not talking about is that the... What do you mean the losses get pushed onto the taxpayer? So when, a business, when you give a bailout to a company that's not doing well, that's not profitable, that money is coming from the taxpayer. So there were enormous bailout packages, essentially, that were given to a huge number of businesses that couldn't afford to pay their employees for a good reason, because of the pandemic, but also it was used opportunistically by a lot of companies. So if you look at the lobbying records in the United States and in the EU, in the lead up to the lockdowns in March 2020, they were not lobbying for business as usual. They were lobbying for bailouts. They didn't want to carry things on. They were happy to take enormous amounts of money from governments. The economy was not healthy in it's the summer of 2019. There were signs that there was an enormous economic crisis coming, and a lot of companies used it opportunistically to get enormous amounts of money. This happened in the United States. This happened in Europe. This happened in the UK. No one is talking about that. They're still billionaires. They got a lot of money. Their businesses went under. They bought up other businesses, small businesses that went under. They bought them up for really cheap. No one's talking about that. And if that, if this brings attention to that, I think it would be Kevin's worthwhile. nodding away. Well, just because, Michelle, there was, a, there was a government minister, Theo Agnew, who recently, very well-regarded bloke, uh, entrepreneur, who resigned from the Lords from his position as a minister. 
in protest at COVID-19 related business fraud that you mm, know happened. Yeah, so I think that's why I was nodding at the, um, Ashley's point. And I think again, look, come on, why bother? Why bother if you're at billionaire status, you know, saving any money through non-dom? It just makes no sense. You're, you're giving yourself a massive headache. Well, Brian um, has got in contact. Brian says, and, and I like your honesty, Brian, I've got to say, Michelle, if my wife was a multi-billionaire, there's not a cat in hell's chance I would be an MP. I would be on the beach. Yes. So on the plus <laughs> side, Brian says, it shows that Rishi is doing the job for the right reasons. Got to say, interesting, uh, interesting point of view. Someone else has been in touch with the headline, uh, Fishy Rishi. I think that uh, sums up. I think that sums up things uh, from your point of view. That's for sure. Uh, now, I was going to talk about Marine Le Pen uh, and then go to a break, but actually, I've decided uh, much. Probably, I'm going to annoy my producer at this point in time. But I've decided instead, I'm going to talk to you about Postcodes for a few minutes, and then I'm going to come back after the break and talk about Marine Le Pen uh, because. There's an exhibition at the Postal Museum in London and it's paying tribute to the postcode, the humble postcode. Uh, do you ever stop and think about a postcode, what it means, or do you just give it absolutely no thoughts, which I've got to admit, that's me. Uh, because actually, Kevin, a postcode, it's more than just, you know, a couple of letters and all the rest mm -hmm. of it. There's a lot of profiling goes on from organisations, etc., surrounding postcodes. It, it, this is a great story, Michelle, for, for that reason, which is that the amount of information about you available a few clicks away using your postcode and a person's name. Um, it, it, and it's there. And I mean, this talks about 66 social types it can analyse, which are those you belong to, the hygiene at your local restaurant, your hobbies, your outlook, your finances, your personal history. And um, I think it's, it, it, people forget this really. And it's not what it started you know, from originally, which was all about to, to help the mail arrive more easily. And now um, it is hugely valuable. You can profile you know, what kind of person you are, what kind of life you live. And I think it's really interesting, particularly so because um, the, the Royal Mail's doing this because you know, the post itself as a thing is under pressure, its existence is in doubt per se, you know, the way that we've changed our habits. So I think this is quite an interesting way of, of, of raising interest in the postcode and, and how we get mail delivered. But yeah, people forget what's out there. Mm. Michael? Yeah, certainly. In terms of the amount of information out there you can get on the internet, one of the most fascinating things you can do, <laughs> it's quite scary in a way, actually, is if you whack your house or your place of work postcode in there on, you know, Google or whatever, the amount of information out there about, you know, when it's been sold, how much for, how much it's worth, you'll probably see a photo of it, you'll probably see information about other locations on the street. It just does show you why people have to be a bit careful with the information that they readily give out, because there's so much available out there now about our lives and where we live in our communities. Yeah, people are always watching and there's always companies desperate to kind of jump on it. You're a sociologist, you understand this probably more than anyone, Ashley. Yeah, some, sometimes um, people will use postcodes as a way of um, figuring out who to survey. And one of the issues that you come across when you're doing social research is, well, you can't, just because you know something about an area, 
and a population doesn't mean you know something about an individual. And what you can wind up doing is you can tar people with the, um, the what is it, tar people with the same brush? I can't yeah, 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 that's right, you're right. <laughs> um, and, and, and treat people um, as though they're representatives of their postcode when you can have all sorts of things going on. You can have, um, you know, a, a poor area that people are moving into and gentrifying and so on. Um, and this is a bit scary because when it comes to insurance companies and so on, they will yeah. <laughs> um, look at you as though you are a representative of that postcode. And that's not really fair. It's something we can avoid in social research. But I think when profits are on the line, it, they're less likely to give you the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, this is the point that Bernard made. Uh, you've just emailed him, Bernard, saying insurance on cars and homes, etc. You're absolutely right. And also, you hear, don't we, as well, about postcode uh, lotteries in relation to the health services that we receive as well and how that all works. Uh, schools, don't even get me started. We could go on and on. Apparently, I like this little fun fact. The Queen at Windsor Castle, uh, apparently her postcode uh, means that she lives in Slough. Really? Is that right? Is that fake news? I don't know. I'm sure someone will Google it and tell me. Uh, but I just found that quite weird. Is, the, is Windsor Castle, uh, according to its postcode, in Slough? Uh, you can tell me. Just a quick reminder as to my panel tonight. We've got Michael Heaver, the political YouTuber and commentator. Also, Ashley Frawley, who's a sociologist at Swansea University. And Kevin Craig, who's the CEO of communications company PLMR. Now, the right-wing French nationalist Marine Le Pen is closing the gap on French President Emmanuel Macron as the country prepares for its first round of voting on Sunday. Now, the latest polls there suggest that Macron is slightly ahead on 26%, while Marine Le Pen is on 23%. Now, I've got to say, this is quite tight, Michael Heaver, isn't it? It's got a lot of people talking, wondering whether or not uh, Marine Le Pen actually could win the election and what that would mean for Europe. Your thoughts on this? Well, this is quite remarkable stuff, Michelle, because... Macron and Le Pen actually met at the last, in the second round of the last uh, French presidential contest. And just to explain, there's two rounds. So all of the contenders go for, through the first round in the French presidency. And the two who finish top, currently looking like Macron and Le Pen, then head off in a head-to-head -head where obviously you need to get over 50% of the vote. Now, we've already had that. That happened in 2017. Uh, and Macron absolutely trounced Le Pen that time. Le Pen got, I think, 30 4% of the vote, you know, two-thirds of French voters backed Macron. So this shows you how much public opinion has shifted. Marine Le Pen has been credited with running uh, a good campaign. She's focused on things like cutting taxes rather than the usual things she talks about. And Macron has seemed to be, I think, been quite aloof during this campaign. I think he's held one uh, major campaign rally only. But make no mistake about it, if Marine Le Pen is elected as the French president. This will shake European politics and the EU itself to the core. We saw recently Viktor Orban, his party in Hungary, uh, recently he got a fourth consecutive term as prime minister. And days after the EU announced they were starting sanctions against uh, Hungary, the so-called conditionality mechanism. So, as I said, uh, Le Pen rising in the polls here very clearly. I mean, you know, her level of support in, friend, in, in France right now is higher than it ever has been before. On the balance of probability, because it ends up being a head-to-head, -head, I still think Macron will win just. But make no mistake about it, this is going to be very, very close, I think, and certainly much, much closer than 2017, when, as I said, these two already faced off head-to-head. -head. Yeah, Kevin, what do you think is kind of responsible for this, for this change? There are a number of things. Uh, as Michael suggested, Marie Le Pen has softened up uh, her offer to the French public. I lived in France, studied the language, loved the country, and uh, uh, she is much 
closer to winning this time than any point in the past. But she's, you know, they changed, she changed the name of the party. It used to be called Le Front National, and she's changed it to Le Rassemblement National, the National Rally. That doesn't sound like National Front. That makes people feel a bit more comfortable with her, her right-wing politics. Uh, Macron has um, spent the campaign, as you uh, suggested, uh, a bit looking, uh, looking slightly absent, uh, doing a lot of uh, marauding around the international stage. I mean, I, I'm personally glad uh, that he's been trying to, to do something there with Putin in the crisis. But and then there've been cock-ups. There've been there've been stupid mistakes about financial corruption, taking voters for granted, and doing all those classic things that an incumbent does. And she, again, as, as Michael inferred, she softened up um, uh, her offering and is in a good position. Now, I, I believe, and I hope, if I'm honest, uh, that the French people will, 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 will not vote for her. And I think when I looked, they've, they've, she's still got some policies, like abolishing citizenship by birth, uh, i.e. if you're born in a country uh, to foreign parents, you don't automatically become a citizen of that country. Now, I, as somebody who came, to, you know, was, was born here of Irish parents, and have gone on and had a very lucky and successful life. That kind of policy I really don't like much. And I, so I think there's still a bit of the old Front National still around. Um, but let's see. I mean, as Michael said, it's tight. Uh, a combination of her sharp political campaigning and Macron making mistakes. Ashley? It's interesting what you say about her softening up her rhetoric, because I remember um, initially when um, Le Pen took over power, one of the first things that she said was that it's no longer acceptable to say those things, the things that the party had been saying, um, and that we needed to have a new face and all these sorts of things. And it was interesting because she said, it's no longer acceptable to say those things. We're still going to have the same policies and the same outlook, but we're going to soften up the, the face of things, make it more mainstream, more moderate, more acceptable. And I think this is what the danger is when um, we have too much of an excessive focus in politics on language um, and trying to make sure that people say the right things and that they talk the right talk. I think part of the horror, uh, small part, but part of the horror with Donald Trump was that he didn't do that. And it was like, oh, he's so uncouth, you know. And then you have somebody come in who, who talks the right talk, but might actually do the same things, you know, might go to war, might be a warmonger and so on. But as long as they speak to us sweetly, we're fine with it. And this is the result of that kind of um, demand for sleek politics as opposed to a good content, uh, um, uh, agreeable content in politics. So now she appears as this moderate, the moderate face of nationalism, um, especially against the more inflammatory rhetoric of her other rivals. Yeah. Mm. What do you think about that? I mean, your point that you uh, make, Michael, about the impact that it would have right across Europe, I mean, it would really shake, uh, wake up, Probably frightening, actually, a lot of a lot of leaders across Europe, wouldn't it? Well, in terms of European politics, I mean, Marine Le Pen, having previously sort of spoken about France leaving the EU and exiting the euro, uh, has actually reined back on some of that in terms of what she says. The strategy I think she's now adopting is, well, I'll, I'll sort of not talk about those topics as much, and if I get elected, I'll then point out all the things I can't do or that I feel I'm restricted in doing inside the European Union. Because let's have it right, I mean, you know, a number of European leaders would not just butt heads uh, with Marine Le Pen. This would be an existential crisis at the heart of the European Union. You know, the new uh, German Chancellor, Olaf Scholz, is of the left. Mm -hmm. I mean, 
you know, you're going from Macron and Merkel to potentially a socialist German chancellor, and Marine Le Pen. I mean, that could be what's leading the European Union. Mm, well, Lego, let me know your thoughts. Lots of uh, comments, by the way, coming on across lots of these stories. Uh, Daniel said, Michelle, did I miss the answer to the previous viewer's question to your panel? Would any of your panel pay extra tax if they didn't have to? Kevin, would you? Well, if you remember, I... Uh I, what be I said, brief, though, because we're almost will, at the end of the show. But I said earlier, be careful, everybody, how you start preaching on this, because, mm. uh, you know, for transparency, the, the way I get paid owning a business is via dividends, right? Because that's tax efficient. So you don't, you know, you don't hear... Actually, yes thing. or no, would you pay more tax than you have to? I, I pay as much tax as I have to, and that's the thing, is that that's Michael, what people are doing. You, you have to do that. I think people in this country pay plenty of tax already. Listen, I'll answer it very directly. No, I would not pay any more tax than I had to pay, and I would do everything possible to legally reduce uh, what I have to pay. I just think that's sensible thinking. At least I'm honest about it. Right. Uh, Pat says, Michelle, you need to get real. Stop talking about politics of envy. It's not about envy. It's about being ripped off and it has to stop. Well, there you go. Thanks for listening to Jubes and Co, the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you will never miss an episode. And if you've enjoyed it, leave us a nice comment. I'll see you next time.